Hey, no new episode this week, but it's spooky season, so please enjoy a re-release of last year's Halloween episode about Dracula. Go out there, wear something ridiculous and weather inappropriate, and eat all the chocolate and peanut butter that you can find. Happy Halloween. Welcome to this special Halloween edition of You Talk Funny. I'm Carrie Harden, and I want to suck your blood. And that's all I have to say to get you to picture me with a widow's peak on my forehead and a black and red satiny cape. And if you haven't guessed already, today we're going to be talking about vampires. I say vampire, but really, I mean Count Dracula, because there are lots of vampires, and nowadays, most of them don't actually sound like music hall villains with twirly mustaches, but somehow we still kind of expect them to, because of this Dracula voice. You say you don't know what is this Dracula voice. Oh, you know it well. First, you will replace all of your W's with V's, and some of your V's with W's. Ah, yes, you are very, very good at this. You will roll all your R's, and your TH sounds, they will become Z's, like this, and... You will be trying to make all of your ING endings into deliciously wicked K sounds like I am doing now. <laughs> it might feel more silly than scary these days, but you'll hear it everywhere. Obviously in Dracula interpretations and on Saturday morning cartoon shows, but also in what we do in the shadows. Muppets and Terry Pratchett novels both regularly employ it. I mean, it might be a cliche, but it's one that works as a storytelling device. We're okay with our angsty teenage vampires not really having an accent, and that's not a new thing. Most of the cool new vampires haven't sported Dracula voice since the 60s. Whether that's Christopher Lee in the Hammer films or William Marshall as the titular Blackula, it's not always cool to sport Dracula voice when things are meant to feel updated. But if you're going for the classic, the Transylvanian Count himself, we kind of expect to hear it. Of course, there's Francis Ford Coppola's camp classic, Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992, where Gary Oldham's over-the-top Dracula voice somehow manages to be one of the most natural-sounding accents among the main cast. But that's okay, because it meets our expectations of what a Dracula should sound like. Meanwhile, the recent BBC reboot seems like it almost made people angry. After this new Gaddis and Moffat BBC count appeared, there was an outcry on Twitter. People seemed to think he sounded less like a gothic villain and more like, well, there's this British TV commercial for insurance featuring a cartoon meerkat with an over-the-top Russian accent. 
Think of the Geico Gecko's Slavic cousin. I went and listened to both, and I have to say that it's not a complaint without some merit. And then the new count's faux Slavic starts to melt away, and we're strangely left with what kind of almost Cockney-sounding accent. Not being super familiar with the show before this, I thought maybe the actor was from London and maybe had made a decision to just drop the character's accent altogether. This can happen when you make a big accent choice and then it's not working. And then depending on how the producers go, maybe the cuts get mixed up and then it looks like the characters going back and forth. But really, we're just seeing two different interpretations of the character by the actor. But apparently he's a Danish actor, so... Uh, yeah, I have no idea. I, I don't even know what the goal is here. <laughs> you know, it's easy to poke fun at someone trying to do something different with an iconic character. But before we get too comfortable with our mockery, it's good to know that even the New York Times in their initial review of the horror of Dracula criticized Christopher Lee's iconic portrayal for skipping Dracula voice altogether and using... Well, what they describe as an Oxford accent, I'm sure what they meant was a posh accent like that of someone who had studied at Oxford and not that he was mimicking the habitual dialect of the good people of Oxfordshire who don't really have a particularly distinct accent. But the weird meerkat thing got me thinking. People do seem to think of this as a Russian accent, don't they? Or at least a generally Slavic one, but that is not what a Russian accent sounds like. Not even a bad Russian accent. And I grew up in the U.S. in the 1980s, so I've heard my fair share of bad Russian accents. So where is this voice supposed to be from anyway? And how did we come to associate it with Dracula? We'll dive a little deeper into the history after the break. Stories of blood-drinking monsters of one kind or another go back as far as Mesopotamia and lots of other places with ancient and seemingly unrelated stories. But the idea of a vampire, like a vampire like we're used to thinking of it, can be traced back to the medieval era. And a lot of it, although not exclusively, to southeastern Europe. You know, like where Transylvania is. There were countless incidents of well, what we now would call mass hysteria events. That's not my favorite term, but it's the one that we have. We know most of this from all the evidence of exhumed bodies and of stakings, bricks placed in mouths, teeth removed, all to protect against potential bloodsuckers rising from their not-so-final resting places. These events tended to coincide with mysterious deaths, and especially with bouts of plague, proving that the only thing people love more than a good scare is a good scapegoat. And these vampire stories are closer to what we're familiar with, but even in these, there's an important piece missing. These vampires were hideous monsters, 
If you've ever seen the silent film Nosferatu and Max Schreck's terrifying spindly fingers, you might know what I mean. The othering of the body was one of the classic hallmarks of a vampire. Throughout history, a child born with a disability or a birthmark or even just with red hair was often considered prime vampire fodder and immediately discriminated against. Health and beauty and a debonair way about you were not yet a part of the vampire mythos. In short, these guys were not sparkly. And then came Lord Byron, the mercurial bad boy of romantic poetry, and arguably the world's first real celebrity. Byron was sexy. He didn't follow societal rules. He was snobbish and morose and self-important, wildly talented and immensely charming. By most accounts, to know him was to hate him and also love him. Oh, and he was most likely bisexual, but since that term didn't mean that at the time he lived, it seems unfair to assign him terminology that he couldn't possibly have identified with. His diehard fans called themselves Byromaniacs. They were proponents of Byromania or Byronism. And so along these lines, the act of being like Byron, a mix of likable and unlikable things that are, let's just say complicated, is called being Byronic. And the heroes of Byron's stories and the stories of a lot of other Romantic era writers who were familiar with the capricious Lord started being referred to as Byronic heroes. They weren't like the straightforward heroes of stories past. To simplify, it's sort of like the difference between Superman and Batman. Superman is just good and just strong and just heroic. Batman is our hero and all, but he's also a bit of a grumpy asshole. And the grumpy asshole part of him is somehow part of the appeal. So the 19th century comes along with its combined love of gothic horror and lovably caustic sad boy anti-heroes and the idea of the vampire. It got kind of sexy too. And Bram Stoker took this idea and ran with it. Now we have a charming, stylish, handsome vampire who's our villain, but also kind of our hero. We're like his victims. We're horrified, but we also willingly invite him in. Now you might be saying to yourself, this is great, but Carrie, how does this relate to my penchant for silly voices? And the answer is Bella Lugosi. If you don't know who Bella Lugosi is, well, you do, actually. You just didn't know his name before now. Bella Lugosi is the actor who first played Dracula in the first real Dracula movie back in 1931. If we didn't have this sleek, new type of vampire, we would never have ended up with the matinee idol good looks and the creepy but also deeply haunting eyes of Bella Lugosi. The enigmatic European transplant didn't speak a word of English when he originated the role of Dracula in the stage play on Broadway. He learned his lines by memorizing each phonetic sound in order. 
He was wildly popular in the role and received letters from fans who were mostly female admirers. By the time he was cast in the on-screen adaptation, he was more comfortable with the words, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the words, more comfortable with the words. And in many ways, he was the perfect embodiment of what Bram Stoker envisioned. It's a little funny when you think about the concept of Dracula's accent because, well, in the book anyway, Dracula doesn't really have a very pronounced accent. He's said to speak English excellently, and after all, that's the reason he decides to keep Jonathan Harker the, the young English attorney whose trip to Transylvania puts the whole plot into motion. This was Keanu Reeves in the 90s movie, in case you've blocked his earnest but disastrous performance from your mind. And <laughs> Dracula actually keeps him locked up in his castle for so long because he wants to perfect his English accent by listening to Harker's posh voice. Let's hope he didn't pick up what Keanu Reeves was doing, though, okay? <laughs> the Count's dialogue in the novel is written very properly, and possibly a bit too formally in places, and maybe with the implied syntax of someone learning English as a second language. But generally speaking, it's excellent. And it's not like Stoker didn't write some characters' dialects in the book. Just look at Lucy's ridiculously American suitor, Quincy, who's supposed to be from Texas and can't decide if he's a proto-cowboy or the worst Huck Finn cosplayer in history. But we only hear about how well the Count speaks. And even he talks about wanting to sound completely English so that he can blend more seamlessly into London society to find his victims. Many of us are aware that Stoker loosely based Dracula on Vlad Tepes, or Vlad Dracula, a Romanian prince infamous for his fierceness in defending his land against Turkish invasion. He was sometimes also known as Vlad the Impaler for his fondness of impaling prisoners of war, but tales of him literally drinking the blood of his enemies are most likely wildly exaggerated. But this vivid image still lingers in the public consciousness more than 500 years later. To many, Vlad Tepes is the stuff of nightmares. But in Romania, he's a national folk hero. And Stoker doesn't just borrow the name for his title. There are lots of references to Count Dracula being Romanian. Dracula himself has a long monologue in the book where he tells Jonathan Harker this rambling family history, keeping him up half the night with tales of his ancestors fierceness in specific historical battles, the Count goes on and on, making some not-so-veiled references to actually being the famously Romanian impaler. And the very themes of the book play into Romanian folklore, and old stories, werewolves, and vampires are abound. The thing is, um, uh, this isn't Romania. They're in Hungary. This is Hungarian. Yeah. I mean, there are also Hungarian vampire myths. There are vampire stories all over the region. 
the Carpathian Mountains, where the fictional Dracula keeps his castle, is in an area notorious for border disputes between Romania and Hungary. Depending on what era you're looking at, the same region could fall into either country's boundaries. But no, he's, he's Hungarian. He's definitely Hungarian. In the same paragraph that he not so subtly suggests that he's the centuries-old former prince of Romania, he also proudly claims his Sicali lineage, forgive me for the pronunciations, that's spelled S-Z-E-K-E-L-Y, and it's a specifically Hungarian ethnic group. Then again, he also claims that his family are direct descendants of Attila the Hun and a couple of Norse gods just thrown in there for good measure. So, you know, maybe a grain of fictionalized salt for everything the Count says when he stays up too late telling tall tales. Maybe the Count had family from both regions. Hungary and Romania share a substantial border even today. And, I mean, with all the back and forth and claiming disputed territories, surely there are families with a blended heritage. But I think the answer is simpler than that. I think that Stoker just didn't know the difference. Or more likely that he just didn't care. But what's the big deal? I mean, these countries are neighbors, sometimes fraught neighbors, but neighbors nonetheless. There's a lot of cultural exchange. We both have folklore that fits into the themes of the story. Surely this won't make much of a difference. And Dracula even mentions both groups, so all our bases should be covered, right? I mean, it's artistic license. It's not a history book. Besides, the whole area is just different Slavic languages, right? I mean, he's not even using the language. It just affects how he speaks English. What could possibly be the difference? <laughs> oh, continued evil vampire laughter. Okay, so as you may have guessed, that's not actually the case. Believe it or not, neither of these languages is Slavic or even somewhat closely related to Slavic. If you're a native English speaker, that information may surprise you. And this is an area in and around the Balkan Peninsula. It's linguistically special. There are a lot of different languages that live here, all influencing each other, but still remaining distinct. A lot of languages that are unique to their language family, or maybe even the sole surviving language of their family. Now, when I refer to a language family, I'm talking about how closely related different languages are to one another. You may have heard it said that English is a Germanic language, or that French and Spanish are both Romance languages. This is that thing. English is a close relative to German and other Germanic languages as well, like Dutch or Swedish or Scots, they all broke away from one another at different times, so some are more closely related than others. A Dutch speaker and a German speaker will probably be able to understand each other, even if they can't speak the other's language. And the same could be said for English and Scots. The Romance languages aren't called that because they sound like something you should be using on a Valentine's Day card, but because they're all derived from Latin, the language of Rome. Romance. 
Yeah, yeah, that's why. <laughs> so if you grew up speaking Spanish, you might pick up on Italian pretty easily. They aren't exactly the same by any means, but a lot of the words are similar, and the way the sentences are structured might be similar too. So that's the Germanic and Romance branches covered. If you throw in the Slavic subfamily, you've got the main three branches of what's called the Indo-European language family. All of these languages, and a lot of others that you've probably heard of, all stem from a single common language, Proto-Indo-Iranic, which was probably spoken around the third millennium BCE. So it's been what I think we can safely say is a long-ass time. For obvious reasons, a lot of what we think about this common language is theoretical, but in short, a lot of very different languages can all trace their lineage back to a common ancestor. And when I say different, I mean Irish Gaelic, Polish, and Iranian are all Indo-European languages. Okay, so back to this specific area in southeastern Europe. This region of linguistic diversity is referred to by the amazing title of the Balkan Sprachbund, a German word that roughly translates to the League of Languages, which makes it sound like a superhero team, and I love it. This area has Slavic, Hellenic, Albanian, Germanic, Romantic, all living close together and influencing each other, but still remaining very distinct. Let's look at Romanian. You may have guessed when we talked about romance, meaning of the Roman Empire, that Romanian is, in fact, a romance language. This means that Romanian has far more in common with French or Portuguese than it does with Russian or any of its Slavic neighbors. It has a lot of what are called loan words, pulled directly from a different language with little or no interpretation. English has a ton of these as well. Look at faux pas, kitsch, or robot for examples. But they don't change the basic structure of the language. Having some Slavic loan words thrown in here or there doesn't make Romanian any less of a Romance language. But what about Hungarian? It's not Slavic? Well, maybe it's, I don't know, Germanic then? Not even close. The Hungarian language is called Magyar, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I have tried and failed to navigate Magyar while traveling and have found myself woefully out of my depth. It's so different from any other language that I've experienced before. It's hard for me to really wrap my head around it. It isn't Germanic or Romantic or Slavic. It isn't even an Indo-European language, and it is in no obvious way related to Romanian. It's part of the Finno-Ugrian family. Ugrian meaning Hungarian and Finno meaning Finnish. There are several other, mostly minority languages in this group, but these are the two most well-known. Also, they are not very similar. Finnish and Magyar are separated by a long, long history and have diverged wildly. So, Bela Lugosi, I'm getting there, I promise. Bela Lugosi was ahead of his time in that he really knew his own brand. He liked to keep his early life mysterious, 
He often wouldn't share personal stories from his youth, or if he did, he was known to just blatantly lie about it. But we do know that he was born in Lugos, Hungary, and he took his stage name of Lugosi from the town's name. He was a native speaker of Magyar. He was Hungarian. Side note, the town of Lugos is in modern-day Romania. Lugosi was famous for his thick Hungarian accent, and once he managed to learn the lines despite not speaking English, it's said that he delighted in playing up his mysterious European accent that most English-speaking audiences, especially in America, just weren't super familiar with. It was part of his appeal, and he reveled in it. When he famously turned down the role of Frankenstein, he cited the fact that the monster doesn't speak and would be covered in makeup. Without his iconic voice and good looks, how would anyone even know it was him? If you go back and watch the original Dracula and listen to Lugosi now, it's still a commanding performance. I mean, it's the 1930s and acting styles are different, to say the least, but still, the Dracula voice can sound pretty silly most of the time, but coming from Lugosi, it's still fascinating and mysterious, just difficult enough to understand that you find yourself leaning in, able to catch every word, but only because Lugosi demands your full attention. And he knows exactly what he's doing, too. His cadence is just this much slower than anyone else he's in a scene with, just giving you that extra split second you need to hear exactly what he's saying. He knows you're on the edge of your seat, and he keeps drawing you closer and closer to the point where you don't even notice that you've fallen off until it's too late. I definitely recommend it. Even if you just watch the confrontation scene between him and Dr. Van Helsing, it's definitely worth a watch. Lugosi knows how his voice works and how to get the most out of it, luring Van Helsing in with elongated vowels and then switching to a forceful, clipped baritone. If you do decide to go back and watch the original Dracula, you may notice a few things. Even though Lugosi is almost single-handedly responsible for the Dracula voice we know and love today, he he doesn't really sound like that. He doesn't really swap his V's and W's, and he doesn't change I-N-G endings to a K sound, like reading changing to reading. These are both stereotypical markers of a broad Russian accent, and he doesn't generally replace the T-H sound either. Now, this is an interesting one, because if we're following the rules of a generalized, slightly over-the-top Russian accent, you would expect these THs to go away. But with a Russian accent, you would expect them to be replaced with a V or a D or an F, kind of like what you would hear in a Cockney accent. But the Z replacement we get in Dracula voice is odd. It's more what we would expect from a French accent. I mean, although, again, this is a broad, somewhat stereotypical representation of a French accent. And with Lugosi, well, he doesn't replace them at all. He just says the TH sound. 
The vowels aren't really all ah and ooh either. That's a sound called a diphthong, where your mouth makes one vowel sound and then moves to make another vowel sound. This is the way a lot of our long vowels in English work. I. But his vowels aren't like that. They're pure vowels, meaning they only make one sound at a time. It's more what you would expect to find in an Italian accent. He really does roll those R's, though, which is pretty indicative of Hungarian. But to a lot of us who might hear that, our first thought might be the trilled R in Spanish, or maybe even the tapped R that you'd find in an old-timey, fancy English accent. But Lugosi's not Spanish or English, and he's not Italian or French or Russian or Romanian, for that matter. This is his native Hungarian accent. And while I don't know if stories of him playing up his own accent to make it sound thicker are accurate or not, it, it sure sounds like something he might do. This is a savvy man and a well-trained vocal performer who knows exactly how to play an audience. And the English-speaking audience he was playing to just cannot pinpoint exactly where he's from. And that's part of the appeal. We project onto Dracula, make him sound like he's from everywhere and from nowhere all at once. And Dracula voice is constantly getting stranger. Every time someone uses a silly vampire voice, it gets just a little bit further away from reality. And while I'm not normally one to guess at authorial intent, maybe that's kind of what Stoker intended? His inability to differentiate between Romanian and Hungarian and just a general wash of what he thought Eastern European was is cringy by today's standards. I mean, this reeks of xenophobia and of exoticism, and it's I'm not suggesting that this is a good way to do things. But he was kind of onto something with the idea that no one sounds like Dracula sounds, except Dracula. And as we become savvier audiences who are more familiar with the way that an accent should sound, somehow Dracula voice just keeps getting more and more complicated. With all these added rules, it really is from nowhere. And I think that that kind of mystery would have been exactly what Bella Lugosi would have wanted. Thank you for joining us from beyond for this very special Halloween edition of You Talk Funny. I'll be back in two weeks with a less haunted topic. And if you've got a question you'd like me to answer, please write to me at carriehardentalksfunny at gmail.com. Or you can get me on Instagram. And if you're liking the show, please tell your friends, write us a review and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.